This tape is entitled, What Parents Can Do for Their Children, by Don Basham. Turn with me in the scriptures to Ephesians chapter 6. While you're turning to that, I want to, well, we'll start with that one. I'll read that, and then I want to read a couple of other scriptures, and we'll be referring to still others as we go on. Ephesians 6 is where Paul is giving the advice to, about how families ought to be structured and how they ought to conduct themselves, husbands and wives. And then he has a few verses in chapter, that's in uh, chapter 5 and 6, and he has a few verses here at the first of chapter 6 that are pertinent. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. It's interesting that Paul in Ephesians here, in giving the advice, quotes one of the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment, which is recorded both in Exodus, the 20th chapter, and again in Deuteronomy, in the fifth chapter, and which uh, is that commandment that children should honor their father and mother. The commandment says that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the earth. Paul refers to it as the first commandment with a promise. Uh, other commandments don't have those promises attached to them. There are, they are, of course, significant, and there are things that we could say about them, but I think it's rather significant that Paul is saying here, reminding the Christians that, that for children to honor their parents is a part of their own assurance that their lives are going to go the way they should and that they'll be able to fulfill God's purpose for their own lives. He says, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment of promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Now, the implication there is that if you don't do that, you're going to suffer the consequences. That if by honoring your parents, by honoring our parents, we're going to enjoy those blessings, it is going to go well with us of God and in God, and we will have a longer lifespan. That's basically what it's saying. Then the opposite must always so be true. If we disobey that command, then we don't have a right to expect the blessing of God, and for that matter, we don't have a right to expect to live too long. That's a rather sobering thought, isn't it? But if you don't treat your parents right, young people, kids, children, if you don't learn to honor and respect your parents, then you may be affecting how many years you yourself are going to have on the earth. So to me, it's simply another example of how important the family is in the mind of God. He says some tremendously, Scripture says some tremendously crucial things for us about the family, which prompts me to again observe the fact that apart from us knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know anything else that's more important for the establishing of the kingdom of God on earth that husbands and wives and parents and kids relate properly to one another. The family is that crucial. It is the, the nest, the matrix, the unit out of which practically everything else springs. And so there's this tremendous emphasis upon its significance, upon its importance. Let me show you another uh, scripture. Turn to Luke chapter 1. I'm not going to spend much time on this. We'll get into more into practical matters, but this is, I think, is interesting that when, uh, uh, when the prophecy, this is Luke chapter 1, when, the, when uh, uh, the angel appears to Zechariah and is prophesying about the coming 
of John the Baptist. And that's, there's a lot of miraculous circumstances that have to do with that. But you know, John the Baptist was a forerunner of the coming of the Lord. And uh, this angel makes a prophetic utterance while he is speaking to uh, Zacharias about the coming of, of his son, John the Baptist. And out of it, he quotes one of the last verses, about the last verse in the Old Testament out of the book of Malachi. But this is the promise that uh, the angel makes to Zechariah concerning the ministry of, of John the Baptist. He says about him in verse 17 in Luke 1, And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and of the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, there's an interesting thing about the fulfillment of prophecies. Scripturally, they can be fulfilled more than one time. That is, there is a day of the Lord that the Old Testament spoke about, which was the coming of our Lord Jesus, and we know there is another day of the Lord yet to appear when the Lord returns. So uh, many prophecies have more than one application. And in the last of the book of Malachi, I want to read the Malachi version of that same verse. Uh, Malachi is prophesying that before the Lord comes, uh, Elijah is going to return. And he says, so I will send you the prophet Elijah. This is the last two verses of the Old Testament, the fourth book of, fourth chapter of the book of Malachi. He says, see, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of, their fa of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And then this angel says the same thing to Zechariah. It's interesting that in the day of the Lord, in the fulfillment of things, in the purposes of God, one of the major signs of the fulfilling of the day of the Lord is that there's going to be reconciliation in the family. And it also indicates that one of the great problems that's going to exist just before the coming of the day of the Lord is going to be the estrangement of kids from their parents and parents from their kids. And to show you how important it is that the family be reinstituted and reconciled and redeemed, one of the last statements that's made in the Old Testament, the prophetic utterance of the coming of the day of the Lord, is that the Lord is going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children of the fathers. That the reconciliation of the family is one of the paramount features of the coming of the day of the Lord. There's scarcely anything more important in the mind of God concerning the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth and his ultimate fulfillment of his purposes for the people on the earth that does not include the family. Parents and children and children and parents. Honor your father and your mother that you may live long in the earth. The indication is that you're to do it forever. As long as your parents are alive. It doesn't just mean when you're little kids to be obedient to your parents, although that's important. But it means the honoring, the giving deference to. Your parents is a lifetime proposition, something that I was blessed and fortunate enough to be able to do for a long time because my parents, my mother was in her mid-70s and my father was 81, 82 when he died. He went on to be with the Lord just a few years ago. But I came to realize years ago that my, our responsibility to show deference and honor to our parents wasn't simply something for a childhood period but was something that was to continue all the days of my life. That God insists... That, of course, what happens is that... The, the truth is that in the, in the family, uh, the parents, especially the father, is the one who is the seat of authority in the family. And when we honor our parents, we are honoring the Lord. This is what Paul said there in Ephesians. 
again in his uh, in the admission admonition that we just read if I can find Ephesians again children oh you obey your parents in the Lord that means you owe you obey your parents as a part of your uh, a part of your honoring and obeying the Lord all honor and deference given to any authority on earth is honor and deference given to the Lord that's why wives are to be submitted to their husbands as unto the Lord it's not just submission unto the person through that act of submission it's an acknowledgement of the authority and the honor that's due God himself so all of our honor and all of our respect uh, for our parents is a way we have of honoring God and this is why God is so insistent on the on on our recognizing this and having our relationships right all submission and all honor that's given to any form of delegated authority in the last analysis is submission to and honoring God himself because God is the source of all honor and all authority and yet we live in a time we live in a time when uh, the devil is making such a tremendous assault on the family and on family values scarcely a week goes by but you won't see something of a derogatory nature in the media or in the newspapers something about the problem we have with old folks uh, you know it really bothers me when people get critical of old folks one of the reasons because I'm getting older every year myself and the time's going to come 20 or 30 years when I'm going to be considered old I'm not in any hurry for that you know but sometime around 80 90 95 in there so I've, I've been even learning to be less critical of old people when they're driving their cars used to talk about old fogies driving the cars so I don't have to get out of the way and I suddenly realized well basically one of these days you're going to be an old fogey <laughs> now it may not be very pleasant sometimes to consider growing old but in a lot of the alternatives you better face it honestly you know you don't have much of an alternative you're going to live you're going to grow old but we live in a time when old people it's so easy to cast them aside there was a big kerfuffle in the media here a while back because the, the media and across the country because the media lifted out of context something that the I think it was the governor of Colorado said about old people they ran a discussion about medical care for old people and whether how long they should be looked after and this sort of thing and something was lifted out of context that he said it made it sound like he said old people ought to die to get themselves out, out of the way now that was lifted out of context I read the whole thing and that's not really what he said but the poor guy had to spend weeks trying to explain it well it is true that there is a there, there's a tendency in our youth oriented society to you know just to put the older people aside that's just one of the ways in which the family is being dishonored I had a, a rather dramatic experience happened one time years ago when I was pastoring up in Sharon Pennsylvania when I was still in my denomination and and uh, I got acquainted with a funeral director there that usually handle the funerals of folks in my church and because we'd become friends he occasionally would ask me if there's a favor to come down and conduct the service for people that came in from out of town with a dead relative who didn't have a church or didn't have a pastor this sort of thing and as a favor to him I would do it and I did it several times over a period of two or three years and I went down there one day he called me one day and said would you do it as a favor to me there's a some grown men here whose uh, elderly mothers died and uh, there's to be the funeral service and they want some pastor to conduct the service and so uh, I went down and and uh, the funeral director put me in a little sitting room close to where the casket was and in the next room were the brothers the descendants the, of the the survivors of this time there were three grown brothers uh, middle-aged guys who were there to bury their mother 
and the wall wasn't all that thick, but I couldn't, and they were shouting, I couldn't help it over here. And what they were complaining about was who was going to pick up the tab for the funeral. And uh, also were complaining about the fact that the funeral cost too much. And they were literally swearing at one another. And I just sat there kind of shaking my head, you know. I thought, uh, how could you possibly dishonor your parents more than that? And uh, we went on through the funeral service, and I was riding out to the uh, burial to the cemetery for the committal service and I was riding in the front of the hearse with the funeral director in the front seat with him and I was commenting about that because I was really shocked. I was not an old pastor in those days but I hadn't seen that sort of thing happen before. And he said, that's nothing. He said, a few weeks ago, he said, it was a whole lot worse than that. He said, I had uh, sons and daughters both who were screaming at one another that nobody wanted to pick up and pay the bill to have their, have their father buried. And he said, I finally got so exasperated, I said, all right, why don't we just sew him in canvas and dump him in the hole? But he said, you'd be amazed how many times that comes up. Parents, people, like children have no respect at all for their parents. And all they're, all they're interested in doing is just to get them out of the way. Well, whatever our age is, we better think twice before we start acting like that. <laughs> do unto others, the Bible says. Our attitude toward our parents is so crucial. Incidentally, it's uh, uh, chickens have a way of coming home to roost. The way we treat our parents may well end up the way our children treat us when the time comes. I was talking to Brother Charles Simpson a few weeks ago about uh, about fact that, that he does such a beautiful job in looking after his, his father and mother. They're active in the church. His dad's a retired Baptist minister. And Brother Simpson, Charles's dad's come on in and is working with us in the church. But Charles is in a position to bless them financially and to help make their retirement easy. And he does it in a very gracious way. He's very generous with his parents. And we were talking one day about that sort of thing, and I commented about it, and he just shook his head. He said, it's not hard for me. He says, I'm treating my parents the way I want to be treated when I get old. And that's what will happen, because God is faithful. Charles has got fine children coming up after him, and he says, and he's simply setting the pattern that needs to be set. Well... We live in a time when, when the enemy is wreaking havoc with family values. There's a powerful attack taking place on the family. Uh, and it, it takes many subtle forms. I was mentioning, I think, in one of the morning sessions, that, uh, or the session yesterday morning, that what we considered the typical family back from about 1930 to 1960, a typical family being, say, a husband, who works, and a wife who stays home and makes the home and looks after two children. A husband, wife, two children, typical family. Uh, for many decades, that was considered sort of the typical American family. One breadwinner, a wife who was a homemaker and looked after her husband in the home and the children, and so forth. But that's all changed in the last couple of decades. Tremendous outside pressure, some of them demonic pressures upon the family. And now that so-called typical family represents only a little over 20% of the families in America. Uh, make up less than 25% of the total families in America. In fact, in many quarters, I mean, the media and others, that's considered kind of old-fashioned. It's kind of nice to still allow that sort of thing, but it's even said repeatedly in the magazines and television and so forth that that's not really the basic way a family ought to operate. It's just assumed that both husband and wife are going to be in the marketplace. Already, 65% of the married women in America today work outside the home. Now, I understand that that's necessary on occasion, and I don't quarrel with any family who really comes to the realization that that's an economic necessity, but there are many cases when it isn't. It's simply pressure from the world, 
that drives a woman to feel it and a husband to feel that they want more money and the woman has to find her fulfillment outside the home and the devil takes the kids. If that's not bad enough, there's all kinds of other weird demonic kind of relationships developing. Lesbian marriage. Can you imagine such a thing? Somebody told me years ago when I was in seminary, 25 or 30 years ago, that the family would deteriorate like that or that the church would ever be in a position to allow it or on occasion even to bless it. I'd say, oh, things may get bad, but they'll never get that bad. I was in New Zealand a few years ago and uh, one of the brothers that was driving me around there was a businessman, a prosperous businessman who frequently made trips to America. And he was, we got to talking, I don't know how we got onto this subject, but anyway, about morals or something. But he told me that on a last visit, recent visit, uh, that he'd made just a few weeks before, he stopped in San Francisco on his way to New York and spent the night, and he was there over the weekend, and he dropped in to visit in a, in a church service, a denominational church service in San Francisco for Sunday morning worship. And he said, you will not believe the kind of service I stumbled into. And I said, why? What did they do? He said, they were having, they were having uh, a dedication service and a dedication and a commitment service. And in that service, they were commissioning a minister uh, of that denomination, having given their approval to him to divorce his wife and leave his children because he was a homosexual and they were endorsing him to go into a homosexual relationship and begin a homosexual ministry to a group of gays. And the church was conducting a service to put its blessing on that. And he said, I saw the wife and the children weeping on the front pew while they were conducting this service to commission this man in this kind of ministry. Who would have thought there would be such, kind, such abominations uh, in the earth and such an attack upon traditional family values and a tremendous pressure. There's a big squabble in one of the major denominations today on whether or not to... In, to, to, uh, to ordain homosexuals, to do it. And some denominations are openly doing it already. I don't want to dwell on this because it's so, so unpleasant, but I want to just say one thing that is so shocking and so unpleasant, and then we'll get off of it, okay? But there are, b before I would wish that so-called Christians who wish to try and put some kind of blessing or some kind of good view on the whole idea of homosexuality, talking about it as being a meaningful relationship. You know, well, if it's a meaning relationship for relationship, even if it's between two men or two women, then surely God would bless it. That's the kind of garbage that's going on. In a Newsweek magazine article just a few weeks ago, there was an article about this terrible disease called AIDS, Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, which is a deadly disease which is afflicting primarily, striking primarily homosexuals because it's transmitted through homosexual activity almost exclusively and uh, it's a very terrible and very terrifying thing but in the the article the thing that shocked me I, I've never felt I've been particularly naive but I guess it was about uh, this kind of business but statistics that were offered in that Newsweek magazine which I want to just pass on to you just to, to press home the uh, horror of this kind of activity the investigation by doctors and uh, those that are involved in, in uh, treating people with this, this, disease, this disease and collecting the statistics, the magazine went on to say that the doctors and the medical profession had found that those who were victims of this disease were more, quote, sexually active than some homosexuals. They were among the more sexually active homosexuals. And then they provided the statistics 
They said the average, if there is such a thing, the average homosexual is expected to conduct probably 600 different sexual encounters. That is, he's to have 600 sexual partners in his lifetime. The AIDS victim, though, they said are more sexually active than that, and they have been recorded as having somewhere between 1,200 and 1,500 different sexual partners in a lifetime. Now, if you can think of anything that's more of an abomination in the eyes of God than that, I don't know what it is. But that's just the kind of attack there is upon the family. So you can see how important it is for us to come to understand how a family needs to work and operate and be held together. Friends, we have the answer in God, in Christ, in the Christian family, in rearing our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and children honoring their parents and maintaining the kind of vital redemptive relationship that God intended through the family all through the years. And I don't know of any other answer. We can't look to and find it in the world anymore because the Judeo-Christian ethics has been tossed out the window by much of the rest of our society. And the only hope for the family is by the grace of God and that we can demonstrate in our own homes, in our own families, the truth of the gospel and of the importance of the family in the sight of God. All right. I want to spend most of the rest of the time just in some personal sharing about lessons I've learned as 33 years as a father, after 33 years of fatherhood. Before I uh, go on, let, just let me say again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Alice and my wife and I know we've made a lot of mistakes. In fact, there's some things you never learn except by making mistakes. The truth is we learn more from our mistakes and failures than we do from our successes. But uh, there is no such thing as a perfect parent or a perfect child. And we've made our share of misjudgments, and we've done things that we had to repent of. And I remember, for example, when Alice and I first got married, we were going to be different from every other set of parents. We were going to treat our children with love, and as they came along, we were never ever going to have to discipline them or punish them because we were just going to surround them with love. And if you just loved children enough, you wouldn't have to spank them or punish them. Uh, that philosophy lasted about six months after our first kid came home. Well, all right, let me just, there's about a dozen of these things. I'm going to take just a few minutes to share briefly about each one. Lessons I've learned after 33 years as a father. First thing I, I learned was I learned some things about me and God in our relationship. Uh, it's a tremendous thing to become a parent, to become a father or a mother, because you suddenly become responsible uh, for other human beings that you weren't responsible for before. And as my children, when they were small especially, and just beginning to learn the fundamentals or to walk and talk and like that. In a sense, I was as God to them because I was omniscient, more or less, with all of my knowledge and information and my care for them, and they were totally dependent on me. And I learned in that some things about my own relationship to God. One of the things I learned was how patient God is with me. And I also learned a, a very significant thing that was a help to me because one of the things I've struggled with through the years off and on is, is falling back into that old trap of believing I'm, believing I'm saved when I'm being good and believing I'm lost when I'm not. The old salvation by work syndrome that we have to fight against all the time. And partly as a result of my own experience with my children when they were small, uh, our kids were always fairly even-tempered, but any little children when they're small, every once in a while when I'm going to throw a temper tantrum or get all crying unconsolably and terribly upset about something that's not really important. And I remember one of the first things, times that happened with our first girl, Cindy, who's now a mother of four children of her own. 
and she got all upset about something. I don't know what it was. It, we knew it was very insignificant, but boy, she let out a yell and was very hard to comfort. I mean, she cried and squalled for several minutes through her own little tantrum, and it didn't bother my wife and me. We just sort of smiled, said, well, she'll calm down a little while, you know. Didn't change one iota our love for her or our commitment to her or our feeling that everything was going to come out all right, but for her it was a horrendous thing to go through. You know, boy, it was important for her, you know. It was just about the end of the world that she wasn't having her way. And then I suddenly saw, yeah, that's the way God is with me when I flip my cork. You know, I get all upset about something, think everything's going to pot, or I get out of the kingdom and I act and behave in a stupid, unchristian, silly way. But that doesn't mean God loves me any less. And God doesn't lose his cool when I lose mine. And I've come to see he just sort of waits patiently for me to come to my senses and get back in the kingdom so we can go on with the business of being partners in the kingdom. And one of the things that happened to me through was that was that I overcame my fear that I had to always be working to earn my relationship to God. I came to see, for example, it with my own children, because I know Christians that fight this battle. I had a lady in my church years ago when I was a student pastor, up preaching a little church up in Kansas, and a very beautiful, devout lady, uh, elder's wife in the church, who was a very fine person. She came up to me one day and she said, she said, Pastor, she said, I never can really be sure if I'm doing enough good things to get into heaven. Well, I was just a young pastor then, but even then I knew what was wrong. I said, Sister, I can tell you right quick, you're not. You know, you're not doing enough good things. And she said, what do you mean? I said, because that's not the basis on which heaven is offered. You don't get in because you're good. You get in because he's good and because he loved us and gave himself for us. That's right. It's by grace through faith. It's not by works. And I saw as my children were small, I didn't want them coming up to me all the time and say, Daddy, am I being good enough today to be your son or your daughter? They don't earn sonship or daughtership to me. They're mine. By birth, they belong to me. And nothing they do or say, good or bad, changes that love or commitment. And I don't want my kids, didn't want my kids through those years of growing up, have that kind of insecurity, wondering one day to the next, were they behaving themselves well enough to, to earn the right to be our children? And yet there are Christians who live with that insecurity. That's one of the first things that I learned as a father. I thank God for that. Being a father became such a, a revolutionary thing for me. I, I sure it probably impacts everybody the same way. My wife and I were living in Baltimore, Maryland at a religious training center in 1951 when our first daughter, Cindy, was born. And Cindy was, it was such a marvel. She's such a beautiful little blue-eyed blonde. She's still a beautiful blue-eyed blonde, but... Uh, this first time I'd been a parent, Alice came home from the hospital after three or four days with a baby, and the baby, was, Cindy, was about five or six days old, and she was a fussy baby for the first few weeks. Now, she didn't sleep very long at the time. And uh, as any of you young parents know, boy, you get bleary-eyed in those wee small hours of the morning when the kid's crying. And, and Alice would nurse her or give her the bottle, or we didn't. she still was fussy. And sometimes the only way we could get her quiet, I remember I'd put her in the middle of a blanket, baby blanket, and I'd fold the four corners over and pick up the corners and hold it like this, like a hammock. And I'd sit down on the edge of the bed, two o'clock in the morning, bleary-eyed, put my elbows on my knees and rock this way with her in that blanket. And that's about the only way she could get to sleep. But I remember sitting there holding her as she went to sleep thinking, I'm responsible for this little life. Totally responsible for this little life. And I thought, what a miracle parenthood is. What a miracle it is to be responsible for another life. It's a precious thing now to see the grandchildren come along. I love the grandchildren just as much as I love their own kids. 
have a lot more fun with them because when they get fussy, I give them back to their parents and don't have to take care of those things like they used to. That's, that's one of the rewards about being faithful through all the years, eventually becoming a grandparent. Uh, another thing that I learned, I don't know whether I'm going to end up with 12 or not in a minute, learned how much, we've already talked about this, how much the devil hates the family and how much intense spiritual warfare there is going on. We've already mentioned that. Uh, I could say some things about the deliverance ministry at this point. Well, I'll go ahead and tell this one little illustration. We were uh, in our home in Florida one time. I had some folks there, and we got into the deliverance ministry casting out demons out of some teenage girls. And it was one of those dramatic kind of things when the demons would scream out and talk and so forth. I don't know if you've ever been in a deliverance service or been in a ministry where people were praying against evil spirits, but when they begin to manifest themselves and you hear demons begin to talk, it'll make a believer out of you pretty quick. Well, there was a couple ministering with us was praying for this one teenage girl, and the demon had erupted in her and was screaming out at these couple telling them, said, I won't tell you who I am. I won't give you my name. They were commanding the demon to name itself. And there was another teenage girl across the room sitting next to me. And we were, uh, well, I was just praying silently as this couple ministered. And all at once, this girl next to me began to get all upset, agitated, and so forth. And I realized something was stirring up in her. She was going to need prayer. But before I could say anything to her or to take her off anyplace else, Suddenly a demon erupted, spirit erupted in this girl's personality, took control of her lips and voice, cried out, spoke to the other demon across the room and said, don't tell them who you are, sister. If you tell them who you are, you'll have to come out. One demon speaking to another, another person, just kind of dumbfounded me. I'd never seen that in the deliverance ministry before. And then suddenly this other demon screamed back at the girl and says, don't you tell me what to do. I hate you. And they began to screech at one another across the room. And we sat there watching this demonic exchange going on. And then I came to my senses, being the host in the group anyway and I sort of grabbed this teenage girl by her shoulders and shook her and I said get a hold of yourself and she kind of snapped out of it I took her off in another room and prayed for her she got delivered while this other couple prayed for the other girl she got delivered and they got set free were rejoicing in the Lord they came back in the same room fell on one another's necks and began to hug and kiss because they were close friends and it was a real time of rejoicing in the Lord but I sat there kind of stunned by what I was seeing with this interchange between the demons between these two people and God spoke to me not in an audible voice, but just impressed very strongly on my spirit what I was seeing, why he let me see that. Please turn this tape over for the second half of this message. And then I came to my senses, being the host in the group anyway, and I sort of grabbed this teenage girl by her shoulders and shook her, and I said, get a hold of yourself, and she kind of snapped out of it. I took her off in another room and prayed for her. She got delivered, while this other couple prayed for the other girl. She got delivered, and they got set free were rejoicing in the Lord. They came back in the same room, fell on one another's necks, and began to hug and kiss because they were close friends. And it was a real time of rejoicing in the Lord. But I sat there kind of stunned by what I was seeing with this interchange between the demons, between these two people. And God spoke to me, not in an audible voice, but just impressed very strongly on my spirit what I was seeing, why he let me see that. He said, what you see here, the Spirit spoke to me, he said, what you see here is going on all over the world between individuals, between families, and in nations. And they don't know that it's the devil. They think it's them. But I'm letting you see it's the devil. And that's what I see. Demon forces invade families, invade nations. That's why war goes on. War is so senseless. I was... It's hard for me to stay on the subject. Uh, you probably watch if you... I know not from the statistics and not, not too many of you watch television here. I'm really amazed. Well, I happen to watch it fairly frequently. I enjoy television, especially old movies and the news and so forth. And recently, because of the celebration of the 40th anniversary of the invasion at Normandy, 
They had a lot of uh, reunions over there. They had American GIs come back and visit Normandy. They even had some German fellows who'd been on the other side. And they came and showed up at some of those reunions, and they talked as old friends. And they reminisced how they were on opposite sides. And I shook my head, and I thought, look at that. Forty years ago, mortal enemies. Today, friends. People, war is senseless. It's demonic. It's the devil in charge of things. The fellow, young fellows who fought on one side and the young fellows who fought on the other side, they weren't all that much different back then. But here they had to try to kill one another. Forty years later, they're friends reminiscing about how they tried to kill one another. What's changed so much to bring that about? It's, well, you see what I mean. The devil is the one that does those things. And the devil is attacking the family. This is what the Lord showed me in that, in that strange demonic encounter. Or another thing I've learned about being a father is I had to learn to get my priorities straight as a man of God or as a minister. Uh, Paul says to Timothy over in the fifth chapter, the eighth verse, he says, uh, well, let me read it because I'm, I'm not, I could probably quote it in the King James, but I'll read it just to make sure I get it right. He says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for his immediate family, he is denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. Paul's speaking here about what our responsibility is to our own. He who provides not for his own, especially those of his own household, the King James says, is, uh, has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Well, what does Paul mean? It means that our first spiritual responsibility rests within the walls of our own home. Pastors need to know that. And there is a prior order of priorities that we need to remember that I had to come to understand, and that is that God comes first, family comes second, ministry comes third. And there's been so many tragedies across the body of Christ by earnest men getting picked off into problems because they got the order reversed. God's always first, but they put their ministry second ahead of their families. God's been a faith and power traveling from one end of the world to the other while their families are home going to pot, being neglected not having the Father that they need. Now, I understand God's grace can make up a lot of difference. I've gone through phases in my life when I traveled a lot. I still travel some. Sometimes I was gone as long as three weeks from my family when the children were small. But my wife and I prayed earnestly about that, and we made what provision we could for it. And I'd try to make it up when I would come back home. But I know men who are gone weeks and weeks and weeks, months and months, and who are out to save the world while they've got a wife and the kids that are going nuts at home. Children growing up neglected and rebellious, a wife not able to handle the situation because they had their priorities wrong. And the more zealous a man or woman is for God, the more easy it is to fall into that trap. And it's so easy to excuse parental neglect for saying you're serving the Lord. But God holds us responsible, first of all, for our own family. Our family, our, our pastor shepherds need to know a family is the number one sheep, wife and children are the first order of responsibility. used to wonder why so many preacher's kids went bad. Because the preachers are out looking after everybody else's need except their own family. And the pressures of denominations, uh, denominations put that kind of pressure on. It's like Charles Simpson said when we were talking about this one time, Charles in the Southern Baptist Church, he said, I was taught in seminary no self-respecting Baptist minister could ever afford to be found at home with his family on a weeknight. You know, everybody else comes first. One of the things when I was in the denominational pastor and I was out busy doing committee meetings and administrative things and evangelistic work and all this on calls and so forth and visitation and there was just night after night, meeting after meeting, 
so forth. Our kids were quite small in Cherry. Our second daughter said one night, I was talking about how this was the fifth night in a row I was being out in the meetings, and she came up to me at a big brown house. She said, Daddy, when do we get a night? Oh, boy, it hit me right here. And I, may, I began to change things even then. I was luckier than some men, I guess, more blessed, because I just couldn't get along without the fellowship of my family. Uh, the, the thing is, there is a... I don't have time to go into this, really, but years ago, Look Magazine ran a, ran a survey about uh, among Protestant Christians, 40,000 of them they queried, as to how much time... It was an article about the ministry, and they ran this survey. How many hours a week does the average church member think his pastor uh, ought to spend in his job? And they listed various categories, you know, how many hours should the pastor in this questionnaire that they sent to 40,000 people, or they got 40,000 responses. Uh, and then how many hours should a pastor be uh, in prayer, in his devotional life, in administrative works, in visiting the sick, and going to the hospital, in evangelism, in uh, community affairs, private study, and all this sort of thing. How many hours a week should the average pastor, should a pastor spend in conducting his career, that is, his job? And the answers came back, and they were all tabulated, and the average Protestant Christian church member in America, uh, the way it came out on the average, the average minister was, was expecting an 84-hour a week from their pastor, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. The magazine even put in one statement, said one questionnaire came back with more hours than there is in a week. They had the pastor busier more than 128 hours a week. That's all the hours there are, no time for sleep or anything. But that's the kind of ridiculous sort of thing that can find its way into church life. And that's why it's hard for a pastor to give the time to his family that he needs to give. And I used to feel that pressure. I know pastors feel it. Dick has felt it. Brother Quentin has felt it. Others have felt it. Because uh, you're paying the man's salary and you want him to do the job. But I got some of this in the pastor that I was serving in Pennsylvania. That I used to, every once in a while, I'd get so fed up with the work of the church and so burnt out, I'd want to go home and be nourished by my family. And then I'd go home in the middle of the afternoon and spend two or three hours with my kids and my wife. Well, if I did that, parked the car in the driveway, I did that, then I'd hear about it the next Sunday. Somebody drop in, oh, I saw you were home with your family in the middle of the afternoon of the week, huh? Well, I soon got wise. I got to parking the car in the garage and closing the door so they couldn't see that my car was there. And I had all kinds of guilt feelings. I was failing as a pastor. I wasn't doing all that I should have, but I thank God he helped me do that because I've come to realize that every hour I invested in my wife and in my children has paid off a hundredfold. And so much of the things that we busy ourselves about, if we're not careful, aren't all that important to the kingdom of God anyway. You can get so geared up with activity that you look that you're busy and you're running and doing things, but you can end up becoming a basket case or having a stroke or a nervous breakdown at trying to move at that kind of, that kind of, uh, that kind of rate, that kind of speed. So I learned to get my priorities straight. God always comes first. My family has come second. My ministries come third, and I contribute in no little part the blessedness of our family and the fruit that's come in our family life to the fact that I invested in them, and my wife did. You get fruit out of what you invest in, where you spend your time and where you spend your efforts and your prayers and, and uh, your activity. There's where you're going to get fruit. And I don't suppose I would ever, by denominational standards, <coughs> standards have been considered a very successful minister. I was grateful when God called me out of the pastorate into a teaching ministry that I'm much more comfortable in. And every once in a while, I still have little twinges of guilt <clears throat> about things I fail to do as a church pastor. But they don't last very long. Every time I see my kids and my grandkids, I forget all about that guilt. 
because I see what they're producing in the kingdom of God. God first, family second, ministry third. I'll never get through this. I'm getting so long-winded tonight. We're, uh, some of these I'll just have to list. This was the third. I've learned proper priorities. God first, family second, ministry third. Fourth point I learned from 33 years of fatherhood is the danger of a double standard. That is, we can't tell our kids to be something that we're not. You can't lay a guilt trip on your children for behavior and things they're doing when you yourselves don't do them. There's no sense in you telling your kids not to fuss at each other if you and your wife can't get it together. There's no sense in you telling your kids to be honest if their kids sit around and see you and your wife uh, plotting together how to cheat on your income tax. You know, you've got to be the role model for your children. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. You're not. But children want parents they can look up to. And sometimes these days, they don't, sometimes they don't even see their parents enough to know whether or not they can look up to them because they themselves have become such a low priority for their families. So I've learned the danger of a double standard, that parents need to, to play the, be the role models, need to be the example. Fifth one, I've learned after all these years as a father, I learned I had to say I was sorry when I was wrong or did something wrong with my children. Uh, that didn't come too hard to me, but it's, it's something that many parents find very difficult. That is, that even though they're your children, and even though you're supposed to be wise and so forth, there's an awful lot of parents who will misjudge a situation or will criticize or punish their children uh, in a wrong way or at a wrong time or for something they didn't do. Now, a little bit of that's inevitable. I can remember when I was a boy growing up, I had two older brothers, and we were, we were good kids, but we'd get into rowdy fights and things like that among ourselves. And when we were fairly small, I can remember times when my mother came back to the room and she'd whack all three of us. She said, I'm just going to hit you all because I want to be sure to get the right one. She didn't know who was responsible for the fight. Well, there's a certain, there's a certain valid philosophy there. But basically, we'll all occasionally, <laughs> I remember this one time when I was little, my mother was trying to get us ready for school, and I was the one that was being feisty, and my mother was brushing my older brother's head, had a hairbrush, and she was fixing his hair, and I did something she didn't like, and she smacked my brother on the head. She said, Don, stop that. But she smacked my, she smacked my brother on the head for something that I was doing. Boy, he hopped up and down, began to yell and holler. Said, "You hit me! I didn't do anything." <laughs> so we all make some of those mistakes, but we need to learn how to ask forgiveness when we do. You know, some parents are afraid to admit to their kids that they're human, that they ever make a mistake. So after we were grown, and and uh, Cindy and Dick, Cindy, our oldest girl, was married to Dick, who's now the editor of New Wine Magazine, and they were in our house for lunch, for dinner one day, and all the other kids were there, and some of our younger kids, one of them had acted up or something, or I thought they had, and I had. A discipline, uh, I think it was Laura, our youngest, I disciplined her or had said something to her to correct her, and I'd been very hard on her, and I'd been very critical, and I rebuked her in front of the rest of the group. And then she, she, she got tearful, and then she explained, she said, but Daddy, I didn't do that. And she explained what had happened, and I saw that I'd misjudged the situation. And it wasn't a great big deal, but we were sitting there at the table, and I said, I was kind of crestfallen. I said, oh, honey, I'm sorry. I misjudged you. I shouldn't have criticized you. Will you forgive me? She was sniffing at her. She said, yeah. Well, I didn't think anything more about it. Uh, weeks later, maybe months later, my son-in-law told me. He said, we were talking together, and he said, he said, let me tell you something. He said, I haven't mentioned this to you, but if you remember the day we were at the table, I was at your house, and we were at the table, and we had dinner, and you apologized to Laura? I said, yeah. He said, I want to tell you how shocked and stunned I was by that. He said, I nearly fell under the table. He said, I was amazed. It was, I found it almost unbelievable that you would do that. I said, what do you mean? 
He said, never ever in my whole life when I was growing up did I ever hear my mother or father, either one, admit to me that they had misjudged me or made a mistake. Not once. Parents don't want to appear vulnerable to their kids. And so what ends, you, you end up, in a sense, damaging your kid's personality by that sort of thing. Don't be afraid to admit your mistakes. Don't be afraid to ask forgiveness. You won't be diminished in your children's eyes. You'll be raised a level in your children's eyes. Kids are a lot smarter than we give them credit for, parents. Do you know that? All right. I had to learn how to be willing to say I was sorry. Uh, I also learned that love includes discipline and, and correction. As I said, it didn't take but a few months for my wife and I to get the idea past that we were just going to raise our kids on love. Now, we did raise them on love, but sometimes love requires discipline and chastening and punishment. I agree with a fellow who said... Uh, a pat on the back for small children is a wonderful encouragement if it's administered often enough and low enough. There are times when you just have to spank your kids, especially when they're small. They have to associate discomfort uh, with their disobedience. And uh, I, haven't always, uh, I haven't always done that perfectly. A time or two I've gotten exasperated and hit my kids in anger. Now, I know that's not right, but more than once I lifted one of them off the ground with my hand when I hit them on the backside with the palm of my hand. Hit them hard enough that it stung my hand. And I'd later have to apologize, for it, not for the punishment, but for hitting on my kids when I was mad. And the forgiveness was always there. But children need discipline. You don't do them any good by not disciplining them, by not putting limits or, or barriers around them, restrictions, so that the kids want to know what the limits are. They want to know if they go past a certain point, they're going to be punished. Uh, that's the kind of world we live in. That there needs to be punishment, there needs to be rebuke, there needs to be correction when, uh, when disobedience has taken place. So I've learned that love includes discipline and correction. One of the things I learned too, which a lot of people don't seem to understand, is that, that uh, the more parents openly uh, demonstrate their love for each other, the healthier emotionally the kids will be. The more open... A man and his wife is in their affection, <clears throat> in their affection, before their children. The more secure the children will be. Now I say this with all respect, and I hope you understand the way I say it. But I think it's something really healthy for the children when they see their dad chase their mother around the house. If you know what I mean. My wife and I've done that. I've chased her around the house, catch her and give her a hug and so forth. Kids just delighted at that sort of thing. We've always been openly affectionate, and yet I've talked and counseled with people through the years, troubled, pinched, emotionally deprived, who'd say, I never once in all my life saw my dad hug my mother, or my mother kiss my father. And they come up emotional cripples in that sort of thing. We have a slogan in our house, did when the kids were growing up, and we still have it. It's, it's two words, hugs help. Sometimes when nothing else works, just a good hug, just a good embrace will. We were in, when I think it was Cindy, our first was just about two years old, only one we had, and, and she was toddling around the house, and I caught my wife at the kitchen sink, and we were embracing. I was giving her a big hug, and Cindy came running over and lifted up her little hands and said, Me too, me too. And we each lifted out one hand and pulled her up and joined her in the family hug, and we've had family hugs ever since. It was about 14 or 15 of us, and it's kind of hard to get everybody in a hug, but there are times when we had the five children at home that all seven of us would gather and embrace just express our love for one another. And yet I know people who wouldn't do that for their children because they didn't, they didn't want them to be soft. 
I've had fathers say, I don't want to show my son any affection or let him see any face because I want him to grow up to be tough. What he's going to grow up to be, friend, is an emotional cripple. There's no such thing as being too affectionate in the presence of your kids. I've learned, too, that every child needs special attention. Every child's different, and I don't care how many of them you got, each one of them's entitled once in a while to have a little bit of time with just you. It said about Susanna Wesley, John Wesley's wife, she had 22 children. She was married to an Anglican minister. A number of them died in infancy, but I think she reared about 11. But it said in her biography about her, in fact, John Wesley said it about his mother. He said, I can never remember a day when I was growing up, he said, that my mother didn't deliberately spend a few minutes with each one of us children by ourselves. Somehow that woman found time in those days with all that she had responsibility for without the conveniences we have that she would spend a few minutes, maybe just a minute or two, but she would give her total undivided attention to one child so that that child would know he's special. I, I confess I knew that good a job. As fine as our kids have turned out, now, there are times when I was too busy for them. When we were in Florida a few years ago and Lisa, it's the girl that we're, our daughter that's momentarily expecting now, she already has one child, she was about uh, 14, I guess, a number of years ago and down in Florida. And one night after supper, I said, uh, I'm going to take a walk uh, and uh, walk down to the ice cream, to the Dairy Queen place and get an ice cream sundae. Anybody want to go? Lisa said, I'll go with you. And it was about three blocks. We walked in a kind of quiet residential neighborhood. And we walked down to this ice cream place and sat there and had our ice cream and talked, just the two of us, and then walked back home. It took about 45 minutes the whole time. The thing that really put me under was that for weeks, even years afterward, time and again, Lisa would refer to that. Daddy, do you remember that time we walked down to the ice cream store? Just you and me? And we had that time, and I thought, oh God, the times I should have done that and didn't with all the kids. Learn in being a parent that every child has a right from time to time to the individual attention of his parents. Another thing I learned as a, father, as a father is that you not only pray for your kids, you pray with them. Now, it's important to pray for your kids. Let me say something here that just comes to mind, which I think is important. God gave my wife a revelation when we were first married, and I give her the credit for it. Before our first daughter was born, when we knew that Alice was pregnant, and we began to pray for our unborn, unborn child, my wife got a word from the Lord in which he said to her, pray for your child's mate. Pray for your child's mate. We started praying for Dick Leggett before Cindy was born. We didn't know him, know where he was or anything else. But consistently and regularly through the years with every one of our children as they've come along, as we have prayed for them, we begin to pray that God would protect and bless whoever it was they were to marry. And we have amassed an amazing testimony about the kind of boys that came to our girls and the kind of girl that came to our son. We have had abundantly answered prayer. And we've even had evidences on a case or two where we believe their lives were spared from some tragedy or even death because, in fact, the girl that, uh, the, the boy that our girl is marrying has come through a lot of rough, uh, the, the Laura is marrying next month, has come through a lot of rough things. And he got in on drugs and all this kind of stuff in New York. New York. He's from the Bronx. A fine young man, but he lived a real rough, rough life till the Lord got him. And uh, we were sharing with him a while back about this, this revelation that God gave. 
Two days later, my wife got a beautiful bouquet of roses from the florist with a note from David. And on the note he said, for years I've wondered who to thank. He came to realize that somebody somewhere was praying for him that spared his life and brought him through all that. So I'll pass that on to you parents. If you have children, start praying not just for your children, but for your children's mate. I think it's one of the unique things that I've been able to say to the body of Christ through the years. Because I, and I, I don't take any credit for it. The revelation came to my wife. But it's been a, there's a lot of other things that are necessary in picking a mate. But I'll tell you, if you start praying when your children are small for the right person, for the person they're there to marry, God's faithful and he'll answer the prayer. But you not only pray for your kids, you pray with them. We took our kids into the faith life. When I left the pastorate, we began to minister by faith. We went through all kinds of spooky experiences where we had to pray the food in and the money in and this sort of thing. And rather than trying to shield our kids from that, we brought them into it and prayed with them. And so they learned the joy and the excitement of answered prayer. They learned the agony of unanswered prayer. Because God doesn't always answer, or at least if he does, he sometimes he says no. And they had to experience that too. But our kids learned how to pray themselves. They learned to exercise their own faith. They can't live on your faith. They have to learn to pray for themselves, and they learned it well. I remember one time when I was still in a pastorate, and Lisa, the one who was expecting, was about three or four. I was sitting at the kitchen table in the parsonage in Pennsylvania working on a sermon, and she came trotting in the kitchen. She must have been about four or five. She said, Daddy, have you seen my socko? Now, she meant one of these little paddles with a rubber string and a ball on the end of it that you hit, you know, it comes back called a socko. She said, Daddy, have you seen my socko? And I said, no, honey, I hadn't seen it. I was working at her table, and I saw her stop dead still in the middle of the kitchen out of the corner of my eye and watch her, and she kind of hunched like that. And then she, she waited a minute, and then she let out a delighted little laugh, and she ran over and trotted over to the refrigerator, had a freezer chest on the bottom with a ledge and a handle above. She climbed up on that ledge, grabbed the handle, stood up on the freezer ledge, reached way up on top of the refrigerator where she couldn't see and got her socko. And she dropped down, dropped down, jumped down in the lap, and I said, Lisa, how did you know where it was? She said, I asked God, and he told me. <laughs> that simple. You know, just so simple for her. I didn't know, so she stopped and said, God, where's my socko? He says, on top of the refrigerator. She says, thanks, Lord. She went and got it. <laughs> now, they're not always, but, you know, that's kind of a simple thing, but what a, a blessing it's been for her and for us to remember that through the years. That kids, you know, it's amazing. Kids can pray with simplicity. They can put parents to shame sometimes. We've had it on occasion when our kids were small. We've had them lay hands on people and get them healed when we couldn't do it. So you learn as a parent not only to pray for your kids, but to pray with them. Uh, about to wind this up now. I've learned that there's no substitute for love and encouragement. There's a failure on the part of parents. We all fail sometimes, but I think if, if you have to make a mistake with your kids. Make a mistake, err on the side of being extra loving rather than being extra stern, okay? Now, it's true, kids need discipline and they need punishment and so forth, but if, uh, I think it's awfully hard to give them too much love and too much encouragement. They thrive on love and encouragement. Something in it makes them blossom. And that leads to the last one, and then I'll close. Alice and I both learned through the years that our responsibility as parents has been to create a climate in the home. Sometimes people say, what would you do to have your kids turn out so well? And, well, I've tried to share some of these things, but basically I think it all boils down to the fact that we've tried through the years to create a kind of climate, an atmosphere in our home, full of love, full of security, full of trust, as patient as we were able to make it, a kind of spiritual 
or emotional atmosphere in the home where whatever the potential is that God has placed in our children can be brought forth. We can't put things in our kids that aren't there, but God has put a lot in our children. There's tremendous potential in all our kids. The problem is lots of times that potential is never realized because they're, they're, not, in a, they're not in an agreeable climate. They're not in a comfortable climate. They're not in a climate that lends itself to growth and development. Just like if you're growing plants, if you don't water them enough and if they don't get enough sunshine and they don't get enough nurture or food or, or plant food, whatever it is, they're not going to become the kind of plants that there is the potential for in the seed. But if that seed or that plant is planted in such a way and nourished in such a way that it gets the right amount of moisture, gets the right amount of food, gets the right amount of sunlight, gets the right amount of pruning, gets the right amount of care, it'll flourish and become the kind of fruit-bearing plant, the flower-bearing plant that God intended. Same thing's true with our children. So I think more than anything else, we have a responsibility as parents to create in our love for one another and for them the kind of climate where God can have his way with our children. Nothing to me more important in all the earth apart from our knowing Jesus Christ. No greater responsibility as members of a family, as parents, that we produce the kind of families that God can have his way with our children. Amen? This concludes another message by Don Basham. If you would like more information on other messages by Don Basham or other Integrity House tapes, please write to Integrity House, P.O. Box Z, Mobile, Alabama, 36616.